Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the groundbreaking backlash, Susan Faludi, has now produced a memoir. In 2004, she received an email with the subject line, Changes, from her long-estranged Hungarian father, telling her he had undergone gender reassignment surgery and changed his name from Stephen to Stephanie. In the dark room is the sometimes funny, often painful tale of a father and daughter reacquainted in interesting circumstances, set against the backdrop of resurgent extremism in Europe. Faludi charts a complex negotiation of identity and history across the span of a decade. She spoke with Noel McCarthy. We hope you enjoy this session. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Noel McCarthy, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to our session, In the Dark Room, a conversation with Susan Faludi. And special thanks to the Wallace Foundation for Susan's visit to New Zealand. We're about to get started, so if you could make sure your phones are on silent, feel free to be on social media. You can live tweet this if you like, but do be considerate of your fellow audience members. And how we'll run this session is Susan and I will talk for about 45 minutes and we'll make sure to leave some time for your questions at the end. Susan Faludi will be known to you as a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the author of Backlash, The Undeclared War Against American Women, Stift, The Betrayal of the American Man, and The Terror Dream. In 2004, she began an investigation into, as she writes, someone I scarcely knew, my father. That investigation is the subject of her latest book, In the Dark Room. And that book takes, admittedly, a gift of a subject, Steffi, the author's complicated, elusive father, a Hungarian woman who was born a Jewish boy called Stefan, who survived the Holocaust by living as a fugitive in Budapest, and who lived through many different incarnations before becoming Steffi when she was in her 70s. This book takes Steffi's story before and after her transition, and it opens it out into a fascinating exploration of history, of family, and of the creation of identity. Not to mention the challenge for a journalist of engaging with her own subjectivity as the daughter of a father who wants her story told, but only on her own terms. Ladies and gentlemen, Susan Faludi. Thank you. <laughs> On the very first page of, of the book, Susan, you write with honesty, this project began with a grievance. Can we talk about that grievance first and, and the sort of basis it gave you for the work and how it affected the work? Yes. Well, uh, at the time that I first heard from my father in 2004, that, um, you know, Stephen was now Stephanie. Um, my father and I had not spoken to each other for 27 years. And that was because when I was growing up, um, my father was kind of the ur-patriarch. Um, uh, and beyond that, I mean, bullying, domineering, 
uh, the, the sort of household autocrat and ultimately physically violent um, to my mother and, and um, to um, my father's children, in particular me. Uh, so I had a certain uh, set idea of who, who my father was in my life, and I, you know, I had taken my mother's side in the divorce, and uh, I, at a certain point my father had disowned me, and then I had kind of, in my mind, disowned, disowned my father. So that's, that's where, so there was this long period when um, there was very little contact between us. Mm -hmm. When you take the, the premise of this book, celebrated author of gender polemics finds out from her estranged father <laughs> that he has transitioned and he's asking, or she is asking you to write about her. It, it is like the setup for a novel or a, a great television show <laughs> that, that I would watch. Right, or a very cheesy uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> series but, that someone would say, well, that is so unbelievable. Yes, <laughs> and yes, it happened. How much of a reckoning for you uh, as a writer whose reputation, whose considerable reputation, was built on exploring and investigating gender constructs and society to, to take this on? How, how, how difficult was yeah. it for me? Um, I mean, it was difficult on many levels. I mean, for one thing, I'm somebody who writes about public and political matters. Um, I, you know, barely say I <laughs> in most yeah. of my articles and books. Um, so that already was uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I felt on the other hand that I could not go forward honestly in writing about gender issues without, you know, admitting to what was going on in my own backyard and without grappling with it honestly. Um, and I couldn't think of another way of dealing with it except writing. I mean, on the one level, I mean, on the most simplest level, my father invited me to write this story. Um, but needless to say, given my history with my father, I don't, I don't do everything my father tells me to no. do. Uh, but I, as a writer, that's how I figure out what I'm experiencing and what it means, and it was a way to figure out my relationship with my father. And this is a book that features you as a writer and also as a daughter, and, and yes. it's a book about identity, and those two identities are sometimes in conflict and sometimes they complement each other, but it seems like it was through that identity as a writer initially that you were able to reconnect with your father. Yes, you know, I mean, my father went through many identities, but I have to, I was sort of shuffling through three of them myself in, in figuring out, um, you know, how to, how to sort of re-engage with my father. And so there was, you know, and I think the most protective external layer was as a journalist. Uh, you know, I have always in my life felt that uh, if I had my reporter's notebook in my hand and my little tape recorder and later digital voice recorder and my list of questions that I was sort of protected. It was kind of my, my um, I was gonna say Superman cape, but more my Wonder Woman cape. 
And <laughs> I, you know, and the first time I went to my, my father, I guess we're getting a little ahead of the story, but my father had this in by 2004, um, had moved back to Hungary, where my father had grown up. So the first time I arrived, I had this you know, luggage full of little micro cassette uh, tapes and 10 pages of questions. Um, and I think that, that being a journalist helped me to set aside some of those grievances as, um, as a daughter and to um, try and perceive rather than moralize and try to ask, you know, to put my judgments aside. Um, and I also just felt buffered with my notebook that I was, you know, it wasn't really me, the daughter. This was, I'm, I was being the inquiring reporter. So a different persona as well. Yes. It was complicated. Your father wanted you to, to write about her, but given her relationship to history and to fact, um, it made her a very particular, as you say, kind of subject. You call her a refractory subject and compare her to Houdini, who was also Hungarian. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly elusive. Yes. Um, in the beginning, it sounds from reading the book as though it was difficult to pin her down. No, and, and my father took pride in being kind of a trickster and of always being able to slip out of anybody's grasp. Um, and we played a kind of cat and mouse game, or the more interested I would be as a journalist, you know, <laughs> tell me more, the more my father would lean away. Um, and so I had to learn to sort of back off, which is not my strength. I, I usually <laughs> just sort of pounding the person with questions, um, which was not effective with my father. So I had to kind of pretend a, a, a bit of a lack of interest, and then my father would come forward. One of the initial tensions, as you say, is around that storytelling project. So you, you, you have the initial communication, you get on a plane, you go to Budapest, and Stephanie is there, and Stephanie wants to show you herself. Yes. She wants to perform herself for you. She shows you her wardrobe, her body, every aspect of her womanliness. But that's not really what you want to see, is it? You were interested in the past, in, in your father's past, which was literally locked in a box somewhere. Yes. So, you know, Throughout these many years of my, this drama between and this kind of journey my father and I were on, there was this underlying contest um, that I think of as between, you know, the word and the image. And I, you know, I'm the believer in the, in, uh, the text and in the sort of complexity of um, uh, not just the written word, but of history. And, and a big believer that uh, history, that you can't shed your history, that you can't shed your, your past experience, that the past is always with us. Um, my father, on the other hand, uh, a big believer in the image, um, a, a lifelong, not only professional photographer, but my father's profession was altering images <laughs> in a dark room. I mean, some of this is so... <laughs> 
You wouldn't Again, write right. it if you were making it up. <laughs> yeah, it is so rich in symbolism. Yes. How much did you know about your father's early life in Hungary before you went to Budapest? Very little. Um, my father would um, dangle a few um, sort of fragmented images from the war years. So my father was a teenager during World War II. Um, and I knew that my father went from having a very um, sort of coddled, wealthy, pampered, uh, well, pampered in one way, pampered in that um, my grandparents had, you know, a retinue of help and cooks and nannies and governesses and so forth. And I knew that that all, you know, obviously went away um, in World War II and that my father wound up um, surviving on, on the streets of Budapest. Um, and and I had, my father told me a few uh, sort of shards of stories um, living off, uh, you know, a frozen, you know, hacking off pieces of a frozen carcass of a horse in the street to, to survive. And once being brought into, uh, well, my father was walking down the street and had um, a, a fascist armband. Um, uh, to pass as, as a Christian, not only as a Christian, but a, a Nazi, or a Hungarian Nazi, the Arrow Cross. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it was the wrong armband, and so my father was summoned into uh, the Arrow, one of the Arrow Cross buildings and um, uh, where Jews were being shot in the, in the basement. And my father was able to um, finagle his way out of that. Um, so I had those, and then there was the last story I knew, uh, and again, I only knew just a, the bare minimum, and my father wouldn't tell me anything more, that at one point, um, as a teenager, my father had gone into what was supposed to be a protected house for Jews, um, where my grandparents were staying, and, uh, or were hiding, or not hiding exactly, but were, had sought um, protection. Um, and uh, this was in the winter of 44 when the Arrow Cross thugs were periodically going into these houses, dragging um, Jews to the Danube and, and um, chaining, often chaining whole families together and shooting them into the river. Um, and so my father told me that, that he had gone in there and uh, rescued my um, grandparents, but that's about all I knew. And I knew it involved, again, this, this uh, stolen armband. Mm. And it's only later that you find out other details around that story. And yes. we, we'll come back to that, because that strand of, of your father's identity as a Hungarian Jew is, is a really important part mm. of the story. But to go back to, to Stephanie, your father's new gender identity, mm -hmm. which you were, you were engaging with when you went to Budapest, did you have any inkling before she announced it? Before, you know, you heard via another family member, I think, initially, and then you had an email right. telling you. None whatsoever, which <laughs> made me wonder, <laughs> I'm a journalist? Where have I been? <laughs> um, you know, and I remember the first, after I received, so I, I, I received this email from my father, this is uh, uh, 
in June of 2004 saying, Dear Susan, um, I have interesting news for you. I have decided that um, I've had enough of impersonating a macho, aggressive man that I've never been inside. So that's how I found out. And I remember that day, I mean, oh, there were so many, as you can imagine, um, emotions uh, just surging through me. Um, you know, including hopefulness that maybe this is the breakthrough moment. You know, now I find my father was always such an enigma, was always so hidden. Um, uh, you know, always seemed to be wearing a mask of one sort or another. And that finally, you know, I would get the explanation, you know, get the, the, finally we'd get the smoking gun, I'd understand. I was hoping this would be the one clue that would explain everything, if mm -hmm. only human beings were that simple. Um, but the, the most powerful emotion I had, I think, was, I remember that night my husband and I went to um, a concert, it was a Schnitka's Requiem uh, for his mother, and it's a very dissonant, jagged, you know, painful, um, grieving um, piece. And I, in my mind, as I sat there, it was like I was running around with the, with the music. Um, in, in my mind, searching through, you know, every nook and cranny of the, of the home of our, my childhood home, trying to find some piece of evidence that, um, that my, you know, f that this was what my father was going through. And I just remember feeling such grief that, uh, you know, my, my father had, you know, had to hide herself away so deeply and so, you know, locked herself away um, to such a degree that n none of us, you know, the people who were supposedly most privy um, to her nature knew nothing about it. And also that and a kind of shame that I felt, you know, I thought I had my father pegged. I thought I, you know, had him down. And in fact, I knew nothing about her. Mm. But having written Stift, a book yes. <laughs> about how ex expectations of masculinity can leave men feeling trapped. Yes. Surely in some ways you were better prepared than other people to yes. be able to understand this. Yes. And you know, when, it, when I was working on Stift, um, I mean, there was a section that was about um, LGBT rights and I interviewed Sylvia Rivera, who you know, was instrumental in the Stonewall movement, um, who's trans or what, I mean, she called herself at the time a drag queen. Um, and, you know, there were other, there, uh, when I was writing about the Citadel's military academy, I actually went and talked, um, it, again, and this was in the language of the time, was a drag queen bar, but it, we're, and that, and the, um, you know, the trans women who I interviewed there were very crucial to me, uh, helping me understand what was going on in this military academy. So, um, and then on top, and then once I finished the book, I sent it to my father, but I never understood that my father was part of this, this story. Out of interest, what did she say? What about the book? About the book, um, yeah. Not very much, just, you know, my father, my, you know, it's funny, I, I sent all my books to my father, and, then, and this was in the period when we weren't really speaking, and, um, you know, I didn't know if my father had even, you know, cracked the cover. 
But it was only um, after my father died in 2015 and I was going through my father's effects that I found this, you know, big folder, this rather large folder, you know, marked Susan. Mm -hmm. And in it were all the, um, you know, articles and reviews about my, my books that um, she had very carefully clipped and often put, you know, in plastic folders. And it was quite mm. heartbreaking to see that. Mm. And your father chose you as the person to write her story. Yes. And as you, as you say in the book, that was not an uncomplicated gift. Yes. You know, the gift of asking and the gift of, of writing, yes. I imagine. Initially, she said, it could be like something from Hans Christian Andersen, which I imagine as a journalist would ring a few alarm bells <laughs> yes. for you. <laughs> and yet, you know, as, as your father explained, and I think as you explained, the point about Andersen is, is melding reality and fantasy in a way that illuminates, isn't yes. it? My father was a big fan of fairy tales. Um, that was a whole nother metaphor. This, I mean, my father gave me so many metaphors, it was actually kind of oppressive at a certain point. Mm. <laughs> but, um, uh, and uh, she was fascinated with Hans Christian Andersen in particular, and, you know, made many pilgrimages to, you know, I would say to, to you know, see Anderson's home. And, you know, I mean, if you think about Hans Christian Anderson's um, sort of leading theme, it is one of, of you know, transformation and transmutation and, and um, often passing in particular. And the, painful metamorphosis. Yes. Um, you know, the, the ugly duckling, who then it turns out was actually a swan, which was a story that my father was particularly fascinated with. And... Um, I remember at one point after our, we reconnected, my father sent me an email um, alerting me to a new biography of Anderson that she thought I should read. And then she signed it at the end, you know, your father, and then under it put a, had pasted in a picture of a swan. Um, but on, on my father's suggestion about my, how I should write the book was, well, you could write it like Anderson um, did. Uh, using fairy tales. And I thought, well, that's not what I'm going to do. But actually what my father meant uh, was that, and, and she was correct about this, that my, uh, Anderson had written three autobiographies and one was less honest than <laughs> the next. And as my father pointed out, um, Anderson um, was mo perhaps most truthful about himself in, in fairy tales. And I think what my father was really inviting me to do was tell a more, tell the most honest story I could about mm. her. And it bears saying that this is a different kind of book than your previous books. This is not you, the solely you, the social commentator, the theorist, the polemicist. Mm. This is also someone who is writing in full awareness of the power of metaphor, perhaps, and the, the ways in which truth and fiction relate to each other. Yes, and also it implicated me. Yes. <laughs> that was uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because, because you are, you're present in the book. One can feel your 
sort of frustration and unease when your father initially is performing her femininity for you. Mm. And I can imagine, you know, as the author of, of Backlash, seeing your father celebrating this sort of very frou-frou femininity that, yes. you know, came with the French maids outfits and the feather boas and, and all of these yes. sorts of items. That was confronting for you. Yes, and I, and you know, and <laughs> there was an arc to this. So in, actually, I mean, I missed the, the chapter that was about uh, the, the, the say like three years leading up to my father deciding um, to uh, you know go have the um, go have the operation in, in mm. Thailand as it happened um, and in those years my father was did, uh, embraced an extremely you know sort of flamboyant like you say the boas the you know um, uh, you know, dressing up as everything from a flamenco dancer to, you know, Brunhilde. And um, when I first came over, my father, so this, when I first arrived, this was about two months or three months after um, my father had had gender reassignment surgery. Um, and uh, she had taken all those outfits and put them in, in a closet, uh, not just a closet, but like a big metal, um, uh, uh, wardrobe that she had, that she locked. And so when I came, she unlocked that to show it to me, and, but just, and then she said, this was my flamboyant period. Now I'm this more of um, a, a lady, as she put it. And, and, and then, so she sort of took me on this uh, tour the first day of her kind of Doris Day wardrobe. So she sort of graduated to that. And then she sort of went into this kind of matronly housefrau mode. Um, and, uh, but ultimately, my father put that down. And I mean, as she began to become more comfortable with herself, um, she, she, she shed a lot of this caricatured persona, much to my relief. Um, but for that first year, we had a lot of arguments about uh, what it meant to be a woman. Uh, and, and I think part of it was my father needling me too, because she, she would say, well, you know, you write about, the, you, you just write about the disadvantages of being a woman, but I find only advantages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it's great being a woman, it's a racket. It's, you know, women get away with murder, you just act helpless and people do things for you. But I never, you know, my father always, you could never take anything my father said at face value. Um, and the truth is that my father, uh, remained I mean, this incredibly capable person who could build anything, did, you know, utterly independent, would never, you know, ask for anybody's help or be like some, you know, you know fainting on the couch. I mean, that was just not my father's personality. Um, so I think part of that was, was you know, a bit of goading mm. me and sort of enjoying the, the um, grapple between us over that. Mm. Possibly she was playing out an opposition of her own as well. You know, by going back to Hungary, 
to this yes. country, which historically had been hostile and continues to be hostile, not only to Jew Jewish people, but to LGBT people, yes. you know, as a trans Jewish woman, there right. is a, a, almost a provocation there. Right. Did you ever understand or get to the bottom of why that was, you know, that impulse to return, especially considering the persecution that, that um, right. she had experienced during the Holocaust? Right. You know, this is, I mean, there's so many aspects of my father's story that are kind of doubled. I mean, you can mm. argue it both ways, and so, and, and I think both are true. Um, I mean, when I asked my father, why did you go back? Um, and by the way, <laughs> a lot, of, you know, I interviewed um, my father's former, you know, classmates at the Jewish high school my father attended in Budapest, and they, um, they <laughs> often would say, you know, the real mystery about your father is not that your father became a woman, it's why did your father go back to Hungary? Mm. Um, and when I asked my father this question, my father would say, well, it feels like home. That's where, this is where I belong. I didn't feel accepted um, in America. And you know, my father also before that lived in Brazil and before that in Denmark. So, the, 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 and, um, and sometimes my father would say, would suggest to me that she felt more accepted in Hungary as a woman. Um, uh, so that's one mm. explanation. And but you, on the you other hand, you noticed people watching her in Hungary, didn't you? I mean, yes. that that felt uncomfortable for you. Well, sometimes. it's a pretty traditional culture, and uh, and not you know, and a pretty transphobic culture. Um, and what struck me though is my father would almost from the beginning would go around without a wig and. She had kind of male pattern baldness. So as you, you know, use the word provocation, which I think um, very much described the, this like, okay, take me like I am. So I, I was, I never quite resolved, did my father go back to finally fit in? Or did, um, you know, it's like, okay, now that I'm, and my father sometimes referred to herself as a shiksa woman post-op, you know, which seemed like, okay, we're really conflating gender and religion here. Um, or did my father go back to say, to sort of thumb her nose at the culture and say, you know, mm -hmm. you couldn't, you didn't, you, you wouldn't accept me as a Jew? Well, try this on for size. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a wonderful moment when you go to the opera and, and your father says, you know, they're, they're looking at me because I'm a shiksa. Yes, they, oh, I know what they're thinking. They're thinking I'm an overdressed shiksa. <laughs> <laughs> this is a book not just about individual identity, it's also about national identity. Yeah. And it's that exploration of Hungary's construction of its own idea of mm. itself that really shows, doesn't it, the potential for identity not only to be something that can be joyful and freeing, but also something that can be really problematic. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about what, what you discovered, you know, when you looked into that history of Hungary? Yes. Well, I, from the very beginning, I felt, oh, I'm actually witnessing two identity searches. You know, my father's on the gender front, but also Hungary. 
um, which was going through um, its own identity crisis in, in um, those years and the shift from you know, being a communist country to a capitalist state, a period that wonderfully is known in Hungary as the change. And of course, my father referred to going to Thailand and coming back as the change. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, the story of the Hungarian identity um, search is, is a, you know, horribly cautionary tale because instead of, um, you know, uh, really uh, reckoning with a, with a very dark past, um, uh, you know, starting with the more than half million Jews murdered with the very active and avid participation of the entire Hungarian culture. Um, and um, in, so instead of grappling with that, instead of dealing with the extremely painful economic and um, social realities of um, uh, the, the country um, was facing in the, in the early, two th in early to late 2000s, um, instead um, the the nation embraced uh, a um, kind of confabulated Magyar identity of kind of chest-beating and martyred nationalism, um, which uh, uh, inevitably led it to the brink of a neo-fascist state with the, you know, all the hallmarks, an authoritarian strongman, a sort of self-pitying rhetoric, um, you know, the sort of, we're victims and we need to, um, you know, and our, the greatness of Hungary has been taken away and Hungary, you know, we have to take Hungary back for the Hungarians, that's like a big mm. phrase, and a quest for uh, um, scapegoats that led to the revival of anti-Semitism, um, extreme um, uh, 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 hostility and violence toward the Roma community and um, violence toward um, LGBT people. And then in the last couple of years, most famously, um, uh, you know, uh, attacks on um, uh, refugees coming across, mm. uh, <laughs> refugees who were just simply trying to cross through Hungary, were not even actually interested in, in settling there. You can see that danger, can't you, of, of a, a national identity that is negatively defined or aggressively defined in the stories that countries tell themselves. And, yeah. you know, it's very timely now, isn't it, with identity politics in America yeah. as well, yeah. making America great again. Well, I felt like I was witnessing, um, well, not at the time, now, looking back, I realized I was um, witnessing what, was, what, seemed, what seems to be a dress rehearsal for what happened in 2016 in the U.S. I mean, the, in 2010, the, um, uh, what was once a more moderate party, the Fidesz party, which went way to the right, um, uh, came into power by championing basically a Make Hungry Great Again campaign mm -hmm. um, and immediately uh, set to work undermining the independence of the judiciary, of the media, of the courts, of, of um, uh, you know, host of oversight um, government bodies. Um, and, you know, what, what really has, what's one of the lessons I 
took away from uh, the research on this book is, and, and witnessing what was going on in Hungary and contrasting it with, with other identity quests um, is the way that identity itself is a really dual you know, Janus face concept. I mean, it can be liberating when it is uh, a path for self-discovery and self-awareness. Um, in the case, as in the case of LGBT rights or civil rights or feminism, um, or it can be, you know, terribly oppressive and xenophobic when it's um, used essentially as a substitute for self-awareness, um, as a way of building an identity on demonizing and blaming other people for your problems. Mm. It feels like the, the central question around identity in, in the book is the question of, is identity, personal identity, something, and maybe national identity too, is identity something we choose or is it something we can't escape yes. from? And I think, you know, anyone who's had an uneasy relationship with their parents <laughs> will <laughs> hope that it's not the latter. <laughs> exactly. You know, did, did, you, did you resolve that to, to your satisfaction? Well, I mean, the, the question you raise is sort of the thread that runs through the whole book. I mean, it's, that's, I mean, it's the sort of controlling... Mm. Um, and unresolvable query in the book, you know, is are are we what we choose, or are we, you know, the very thing that we that we can, you know, no matter how hard we run, we can't get away mm. from. And and like all chicken and egg questions, it's both. You know, we can we um, can't help but construct our identity on on what we've inherited and yet even as we do that we are we we are reconstructing that inheritance um but i you know i think in modern times or postmodern times there's a desire for identity to be um to be just a matter of individual choice and a matter in in a kind of standalone um you know kind of suit of armor that we put on, um, but you know what I learned in in w witnessing my father's struggle was this, all the ways that my father's identity was you know uh, inseparable and you know, sort of embedded in everything that had happened to her and happened around her, her history, her family history, her nation's history. Um, all those external forces that, that we can't choose. And yet at the same time, my father um, struggled mightily to, to um, carve out of that um, a, a self that felt right to her. And, and that was her life, you know, that was her lifelong battle. And it took a long time, I mean, you know, uh, you could say that a consequence of extended longevity, human longevity, is that these decisions and these moves towards identity creation are happening for us later in life. Yes. Your father was in her 70s when, yeah. when, when all of this was taking place. For you as a daughter, was that a source of sadness for you that it took so long? Yes. I mean, 
so much of my father's existence was just hidden away. I mean, and I mean, here's somebody who spent an entire career literally working in a dark room, right? And and that it took till my father was 76 years old to, um, you know, to step out of that room to, or at least to illuminate it, um, and to, to dare to say this is who I, this is who I feel I've always been, um, is, I mean, it's sort of unbearable to imagine. And, um, you know, when we sat and um, I would press my father over and over again, you know, when, when did this begin and how long have you felt this way? And, and my father had very early memories of, you know, being a, just a little child and uh, my father had this uh, nursemaid who uh, was kind of a traditional Hungarian um, peasant girl. And she had this, like a little Hungarian folk dress and my father remembered her putting the dress on, on um, my father one day. And my father thinking, even then, like this is, you know, seven, six years mm -hmm. old, thinking, oh, this is, this feels right, this feels, um, uh, you know, having this kind of stirring of, this is, this is who I am, um, and then just hiding that away. And you have to understand, when I was growing up, my father, my father had put on a lot of costumes, but they were rock climbing, ice climbing, uh, horseback riding, mount, alpine mountaineer, um, uh, I'm trying to remember all that. There was a sailboat period, you know, when my father had like a yachting cap and a whole, um, blue, you know, the whole sort of naval <laughs> regalia. Um, so there were, yes, there, were all, you know, there was all this dress up on the other side. And sometimes I think that, that um, part of the reason my father went to this kind of extreme, you know, kind of frou-frou um, uh, femininity in the early years was that it was a kind of um, cudgel to to break out of the carapace of this hyper-masculinity that, that she had forced herself into mm. all those years ago. And yet that sort of essentialism around identity, around gender identity, Steffi says, I, I, you know, I became a woman because that's simply the reality of, of who she was. Right. You know, as someone who spent so long looking at the influence of politics and society and um, family on gender, mm. was that convincing to you? Because there's passages in the book where, you, where it feels like you're frustrated with that explanation. Well, you know, I think, I mean, my father's desire to be a, to be a woman was you know, undeniable and persistent, and she never regretted having the operation, and I think it brought her some measure of peace. Um, but that's different from how she perceived what a woman meant, which was very much defined by her times, by, you know, growing up with a with a mother who was a, like total, you know, diva and, um, you know, dressed to the nines. And I mean, I could see where my father got her ideas of femininity from. 
Um, and then, and it's, that is also apart from the question of what she wanted out of becoming a woman. So while they, you know, I'm... To have people look after her yeah. or to pick up groceries for her. Or, or to be loved mm. and to be, to feel special, to feel cared for. I mean, my father grew up a very unloved child. Uh, my grandparents were, you know, before the war were socialites who were out every night and left the care of their only child mm. to, you know, basically the hired help. My grandparents didn't even show up for my father's bar mitzvah. Um, and then, of course, during the war, my father was basically, I mean, uh, you know, uh, alone on the streets. Um, and then after the war, um, left Hungary and then my grandparents went to Israel and my father was just furious with them and never, you know, uh, um, disowned um, my grandparents and never saw my grandfather again and um, saw my grandmother once and um, for a very brief period of time. So, uh, um, I forget where I was going with this, but I... Well, you've sort of set up the next question I was going to ask. You know, given that even before the Holocaust in Hungary, Hungary had such an uneasy and, and sort of difficult relationship with its Jewish population, mm -hmm. there are really rich resonances in, in this story between, you know, the identity of Jewish young people wishing to pass and that need to pass. Mm. And then the other story of, of a new gender identity, of, yes. of passing. Yes. You know, this is, and, and yet, you know, obviously you're sort of sophisticated enough as a writer to resist an easy conclusion about that. Right. But the symbolism is still very powerful, isn't it? That this theme of passing yes. in your father's life. Yeah, and my father made the connection. Because my father would say to me, well, um, you know, the fact that I was able to, um, to, you know, pass as a Christian during the war, that I got certain lessons from that, and then I applied them to, you know, to, to passing as a woman. I mean, this is my father's language, which is, mm -hmm. by which I don't mean to at all suggest that, you know, the Holocaust was like some switch that flipped my father's gender. But then in my father's mind, um, these two identities were in conversation. Um, and I think that's true for all of us, that, that uh, you know, there, there aren't these singular identities. They're all shaping mm. each other. I think also one has to understand that um, a little bit of um, I mean, the situation for Hungarian Jews, um, that Hungary, unlike uh, you know, uh, many other European countries, there was actually a period known as the golden age of Hungarian Jewry in the last half of the 19th century, where for complicated historical reasons, I mean, hun hun uh, the Hungarian aristocracy basically needed um, the um, wealthy Jews to um, help urbanize and uh, modernize and industrialize the country and sort of bring it into um, 
the modern era, and there was a kind of social pact by which um, uh, the privileged um, sector of Hungarian Jews were uh, invited to build up the country and, and allowed to be recognized as Hungarian if in exchange, and this is the Faustian pact part, they'd rid themselves of any kind of you know, Jewish markers. Um, and so this, there was a period where assimilation seemed to work for, for um, privilege or um, Jews, and I think partly my father's sort of fantasy of, of going back to Hungary um, and fitting in again was this yearning to go back to this period um, that lasted from like the 1860s until World War I. Mm. And yet at different times in, in the story, Steffi is very adamant that her Jewishness is not an issue. It's not, it's not her chosen identity mm -hmm. because somehow the transition has superseded that. Mm -hmm. you know, has, she, she suggests another title for the book, this anxiety of non-belonging, mm -hmm. and says, well, that's got nothing to do with my Jewishness, which mm -hmm. you know, is extraordinary coming from a trans woman who has lived through a period where the government colluded with Nazis in, right. in trying to liquidate the Jewish population. And um, when she returned, I mean, once communism was, I mean, because the, uh, the socialist state repressed religions, mm. so as soon as that was lifted, uh, anti-Semitism came surging back in the country, and my father had um, several really horrendous encounters. Um, I mean, one where, soon after she moved back to Hungary where I, um, she was having some repairs done on the house and got in an argument with a repairman who turned around and said, you know, you know, started cursing my father and then said, you know, this is why all, all of you Jews should have died in the gas chamber. I mean, and, and this is just one example of, of many. And, and she, she said to you, nobody sees me as a Jew because I don't see me as a Jew. Yeah. And you didn't buy that, and you had good reasons for yeah. not buying that. And you know, I think again, my father, I'm not sure that my father, and I, I mean, I don't think my father ultimately um, believed that. I think my father wanted that to be true. Mm. But what was really telling to me in the last years of my father's life she turned back to her Jewish identity. She began to talk more and more about it. Whereas for the first many years when I was visiting, I, you know, I was like, let's go to the Orthodox synagogue where you spend every Sabbath. No, no, that's ancient history. What do you want to see that for? And, and if I really pressed, my father would say, oh, I have a, you know, we can look at it online. There's a picture online, that's enough. Um, and, you know, didn't want to go to the Jewish high school, didn't, you know, didn't want to do any of that. And then in the last few years, uh, my father became open to it, and we ended up um, going to the synagogue. Um, and in fact, in the very last year, uh, uh, you know, my father, right before I would, would um, I, I was due to come visit. My father called me and said, um, look, I'm, I, you know, it's, 
I emailed you something, and I look at it, and it was an announcement for the um, uh, a small reform synagogue led by the first female rabbi in Hungary um, that had set up shop in this apartment building. And the thing that was so extraordinary was it was the apartment building that my grandfather mm -hmm. owned and where my father grew up. Um, and I, I said, well, maybe we could go there. I'm thinking, okay, my father's going to say, no, no, no. Um, and not only did my father agree, um, but um, she decided that we could go to Rosh Hashanah services there. And, and so we did. And it turned out that the, the synagogue... Again, this is one of these things where this would, I could never make this fiction because nobody would believe it. Um, we, we walk into the building um, and go up to the apartment where this, you know, it's this tiny little synagogue because so few Jews and so few practicing Jews um, remain. Uh, and my father just, you know, looked polaxed as we stood at, at the door of this, of this apartment and she said, this is, the, this is the apartment where she and my grandfather hid in the, um, for a, a couple of months in the summer of 1944 um, uh, while uh, Jews were being deported in the countryside. Um, and so, you know, I mean, here's my father who first, the first many years after, um, you know, I, we reconnected, was insisting over and over again that the past had no relevance and that could, it could be locked away in, you know, mm -hmm. in, a, in a dark room. Um, who, in the last, you know, couple of years of her life, her just, was just overwhelmed with a, with a sort of tsunami of history coming, coming back into... Um, into the, you know, <laughs> sort of hunting her down almost. Um, and, but I, I feel like she made a certain, by taking me to the synagogue and by taking me to the Rosh Hashanah services, and um, she was able to return to the, and somehow integrate at a very late date these, these other pieces of her life um, and to finally have an identity that, that wasn't just, you know, um, one slice, but she was able to be a, a, a more fully integrated person. Mm. It's been a pleasure. Thank You'll be you. able to see Susan at the author signing table outside and in a free reading session tomorrow at midday in the Limelight Room. Please join me in thanking Susan Saludo. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.